0: Hello. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. I'm David Osman, and with me today is Helen Thomas of Blonde Money. Our subject for this podcast is Biden, Brexit and the pandemic in 2021 and 2022. The Independent Research Forum promotes a wide range of the best investment-related independent research providers from around the world both macro and micro, many global, some country specific, some sector specific, and some stock pickers. Given the uncertainties that are facing us from every direction, I'm particularly pleased that we're joined today by Helen Thomas, who is the Founder and Chief Executive Officer of Blonde Money. Helen Thomas has almost 20 years experience in both finance and politics, Helen was an advisor to the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, and she also created the Financial Markets Reform Program for the think tank, Policy Exchange. Previously, Helen has been a partner in the Global Macro Hedge Fund, ABD Investment Management, and a former Head of Currency Alpha for State Street Global Advisors. She is a CFA Charter Holder, and serves on the board of CFA UK. She is also a Freeman of the City of London and she has a degree in philosophy, politics and economics from Christchurch Oxford University. Founded in 2014, Blonde Money is an an independent consultancy firm that analyzes and monitors mispriced risks in financial markets in the US, UK and the European Union. This ranges from political risks such as Brexit and the US presidential elections to structural market instabilities such as those created by exchange-traded funds. As CEO, Helen coordinates a team of experienced finance professionals and aspiring analysts who identify and monitor hidden risks in global financial markets. Helen, welcome. First of all, Let's begin with a brief introduction to the Blonde Money Service, and the way that you and your team analyse and predict important political and economic events and financial market developments.
1: Hello, David, and thank you to IRF for the invitation to appear on this podcast. We are delighted to be talking to you as we kick off this new year with plenty of risks out there on the horizon that we need to be looking at. Our team looks at these unpriced risks and then how to monitor and assess them going forward. So we will look at something that's a very qualitative risk like politics and translate it into something more quantitative so that you can monitor what's going on. And we have done that a number of ways from looking at, for example, the winnability of a state in the US for a particular candidate to going right down into MP by MP analysis in the UK over how they would vote on certain issues. So our goal, as always, is to cut through the noise to get to the core of what's happening around the world in central banks, trading floors and governments. And our goal is to do that in a concise and engaging way. We offer various short written reports, but also WhatsApp updates, podcasts, conference calls, etc.
0: Now, Helen, I remember when you were discussing the COVID 19 pandemic in early September, you said, We locked ourselves down and will do so again. An accurate prediction that has sadly come true, despite the rapid development of several vaccines. How do you see the pandemic unfolding in 2021? and 2022?
1: Well, I think the point of the pandemic is the damage has been done when it comes to people's behaviour. And that's how we have always sought to look at its impact. Uh, people's behaviour has changed. I mean, we're, we're running onto almost a year now of having to alter our lives because of the pandemic. And I mean, we wrote a piece in March last year called It All Comes to Nought. And our, our point on that was that there would be a huge response from the policymakers, but it would come to nothing, both in terms of zero interest rates, but also no real impact, because it is the behavior, it's the fear that really matters. And fear casts a very long shadow. And I just want to um, take an example here. If you think of there being 100 people, and 10 of them are more afraid than they were before. And and they might be afraid for many reasons. They've experienced the virus. They know someone else who has. Or they actually simply think, God, my life has changed so much and so much has been imposed on me that this must be really bad. You know, that level of fear, it stays with people. And if we take 10 of those 100 people, then even when we get to a point where things are much more open and free... 10 people will not be spending in the same way as they were before, Uh, leaving, of course, the other 90 people to have to do a lot more spending, go on a lot more cruises or eat a lot more restaurant meals to get anywhere near back to the size of the economy as it was before. And to put that in a more anecdotal context, I actually have a, a very good friend who during the first lockdown said to me, Oh, when, th- when things ease, we are going to binge on freedom. And I have to tell you that, you know, almost a year later, I think she's been out to two pubs in that time. So this concept of binging on freedom, it's just not going to be there for some people their their, their fear is going to dominate for too long and they will change their habits. So, um, that's where I would say that, you know, doesn't sort of matter too much on the path of the pandemic when it comes to the economy, because the consumption patterns have changed.
0: And do you fear other kinds of sort of longer term economic scarring coming from this pandemic?
1: Well, the, the other thing that's going on, of course, is, is that this is a catalyst for structural changes that were happening anyway. Um, We were moving into a much more online virtual world. Um, We are in the middle of a decade, many decades long technological revolution, just like the industrial revolution. That means certain jobs, industries just going to be entirely redundant uh, for how we do things. I mean, look at what we're doing now, David. Um, You know, we're we're doing this all entirely remotely. And I'm hoping that the listeners will be having a, a seamless experience of feeling like you and I are in the same room. And maybe in the future, who knows, we will end up all in some sort of virtual conference center with our avatars chatting to one another. Either way, there are big changes afoot in terms of how we're all interacting. And we've come to frame this as something that we're calling the velocity of people. That is to say the interactions between people in the system. And we're shifting from them being physical interactions to being virtual Eventually, the technology will catch up. We will shift and we will get there. But right now, we are in the schism between the two regimes, which uh, is what is leading to these inefficient outcomes, and that is what's going to weigh on the economy.
0: So given the pandemic and Brexit, how difficult will the next two years be for the United Kingdom?
1: Well, I think this point about the shift is important. When you shift regimes, you get inefficient outcomes which tend all else equal to lower the potential growth for the economy uh, and that's what with when it comes to the Brexit deal that's where we are I mean it might feel after four years thank god we got to this point but the truth is this is now a starting point for the future relationship between the EU and the UK it will take decades to thrash out so um There's going to be this period of inefficiency whilst um, it's figured out exactly what all of these new issues mean. However, the UK does start from being the most aligned third country to the EU, which is at least minimizes to some degree some of those frictions. So there is a there is an advantage in that sense for Britain. And then when it comes to the pandemic, the UK's also got an advantage because we are the country that has, in terms of vaccines, the most per capita uh, that have been committed to. So, so there are some inbuilt advantages, but whether Britain can thrive and build on these is going to depend a lot on the political leaders. They're the ones who will implement this shift into a post-Brexit, post-pandemic world. And it's not just about Boris Johnson who we believe will be gone before the next election but also look at France and Germany you know within the next 18 months we're going to have national elections both countries uh, it's the end of Angela Merkel there will be new leaders directing the future of Europe and so it is this interaction of this political leadership that is going to set the tone for the economy of both Britain and the EU going forward
0: You mentioned a period of inefficiency, but do you expect some of the damage to the UK economy to be temporary or long lasting and permanent?
1: I think some of it will be temporary when it comes to elements like the Brexit deal. I mean, you you can already start to see that when you start to put down lines of what is and is not allowed, certain groups are excluded. So, for example, travelling musicians. Are worried they have to get a visa now to visit each different member state of the EU. They are getting together to lobby to change that rule. This will happen to various different interest groups in the next uh, couple of years. And so those will be those short-term inefficiencies that will be ironed out. But for me, the longer-term inefficiencies relate to this structural shift, this technological revolution, to a life lived online, or more virtually. If Britain can conquer those for example, with much better broadband infrastructure being one part of it, then that will minimise any scarring and could improve the potential long-term growth outlook for the country.
0: And moving across the pond, what do you expect to be the main achievements of the Biden administration in the next two years?
1: I think there will be very little because we are left, as it stands, as we're talking now, with a 50-50 split in the Senate. Now, that is quite unusual and it's quite important because what it means is you end up with more focus on divisions within parties than between them. So, it really comes down to each individual senator, for example, not just the ones in the centre, so the most Republican-leaning Democrat, but then also the ones at the extreme, in the most left-wing Democratic senator. Because when it's 50-50, every vote counts, effectively creating a veto power that uh, senators can use to pull the policy in the direction they want it, to get their particular bit of pork barrel into legislation. And the reason that this could cause problems for the Biden administration is the Democratic Party itself. It is very split. It was thrown into disarray by the failure of Hillary Clinton to win. And it has never quite resolved whether the answer to Trump was to move left or to the center or what. And therefore you are left, although it's one party, with uh, quite a lot of anger and rancor even within the party about what its policies should be. So I would say that there's not really actually a mandate for the Democrats and the Biden administration. There was an expectation of a blue wave, you may well remember back in October, uh, where it looked like the Democrats would get a solid majority in the Senate. And in the end, they've managed to sort of scrape through to 50-50. So they haven't quite got the public vote, the big popular mandate, to get some things done.
0: And what do you consider to be the main mispriced risks in financial markets at present, given all the strange things that are going on in the world today.
1: Well, we've just run through there, haven't we? Some really significant structural shifts, changes to the economic outlook and political volatility. But look at the markets and it's what I would call Panglossian. Best of all worlds, looks brilliant, whatever happens. And of course, we know this is to do with the huge amount of interventions. You know, market prices are distorted from the reality. Deliberately so, because we couldn't have had a financial market crisis on top of a health crisis and an economic crisis. And we said last year, uh, around about the summertime, we said, look, this is the recession that can't be priced. They will not let us price it in. Uh, It would just have made things worse. But that's not the way that it will look forever. Um, We haven't actually even had the teeth of the recession yet because there's all these furlough schemes in place and extra uh, unemployment benefits, etc. You know, we haven't had a classic recession of mass unemployment, people saving more, people can't spend, etc. So that will come. And where I'd look for that to cause a problem in the market is when it comes to credit. There will be businesses that fail. At the moment, of course, in the search for yield, there's been a lot of flowing into uh, corporate bonds. But ultimately, many small and medium-sized businesses will be unable to survive. Uh, Other bigger businesses shouldn't survive as we move into this new technological world. They will be redundant. So credit pricing, I think credit spreads, those are going to be the key to watch uh, in the year
0: ahead. When when you look at um, consensus economic forecasts, do you feel that the inflation risk is being mispriced in any way?
1: I get asked about inflation more than anything else, and I have to tell you, it frustrates me more than anything else because we are in, a, as I say, a secular regime change. We like to look at inflation for some signal about the economy, but that would mistake that the economy is completely different now, and it's not even settled in its new position. All the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle have been thrown up in the air and they are falling back to earth, and we don't yet know if they're going to form a picture of a frog or a chair. So talking about inflation is like totally the wrong concept. Um, There will be some mechanical inflation because prices fell low due to a number of factors, including government interventions. So there'll be a base effects element whereby they rebound. But to get proper sustainable inflation, you need demand to outstrip supply. And we have got a situation where both supply and demand are shrinking. And it is an ongoing dynamic process that will take several years until we settle at a new equilibrium. So, for example, in March last year, everybody wanted a freezer. In the summer, they wanted garden furniture. Then they wanted a car because they didn't want to go on public transport. But yet, all of those things were just transitory. Uh, we need to settle on a new consumption basket, and that will mean moving to this new world, live more online, velocity of people is impaired, and that means that you would be unlikely to get a sustained rise in inflation for for many years to come.
0: Helen, many thanks for this wide ranging and most interesting insight into the service that's provided by Blom Money. With more time, it would be interesting to discuss in greater detail the political, economic and financial market implications of current developments. The Independent Research Forum is offering a trial to the Blonde Money Service and can provide details of how to subscribe to the full service. More information is available on request from the Independent Research Forum. Thank you for listening to this IRF podcast with Helen Thomas the CEO of Blonde Money.
1: Thank you.